Welcome to Beyond the Boardroom with me, Kieran Paul. Now this is the second of our new News in Brief episodes, where I am joined by Insightia's Rebecca Sherritt and Antoine Giblin, and also today, Joe Lyons, who is another member of our fine editorial team. Essentially, we will be discussing the top stories we think you need to know. So hello, Rebecca. Hey, Kieran. Happy to be here. And uh, welcome, Antoinette. Hello there, Kieran. And Joe, for the first time on the News in Brief episodes, uh, good to have you. Hey, Kieran. Pleasure to be here. Uh, now, since our last episode, a lot has happened across the corporate governance and shareholder engagement space, I think it's fair to say. Uh, Rebecca, Asian investor engagements have been quite a hot topic in one of our newly released reports. They really have been. While Japan has historically been no stranger to activism, Asia more broadly is really starting to generate a lot more interest from shareholders. ESG activism in particular has become pretty prevalent across all of Asia, with 21 environmental demands made of Asia-based companies in 2022, compared to just around five a year prior, and only one the year before that. But I will use this opportunity to plug our latest special report that you just mentioned, Kieran, our report Corporate Governance in Asia. For those that have yet to download the report, it delves not just into the rise in shareholder activism in the region, but also the latest ESG and short-selling trends. I'm honestly really proud of this report and think it's jam-packed with some great insights, especially for those that are interested in learning more about this increasingly popular market. So please do give it a read. And yes, uh, no, it is a great report. And uh, I'll put a link in the show description as well for you. So you can uh, very easily download that and get reading it. Now, Antoinette, what uh, key campaigns reached their conclusion in recent weeks? Yes, Kieran, since we last spoke um, in our last episode, I think we discussed the Ritchie Brothers campaign as um, investor groups on both sides clashed on the potential merits and indeed downfalls of its proposed merger with auto retailer IAA. Well, on March 15th, the company uh, made an announcement that its shareholders had voted to approve that merger. So a filing that followed revealed that about 85% of Ritchie Brothers' share capital uh, took part in that vote and uh, the deal enjoyed the best support, a wider majority at IAA, where about 82% of the shares cast were for the combination. And then, of course, RBA shareholder Luxar Capital had indeed been one of the most vocal opponents throughout that campaign. And I know we spoke about it in our last episode, highlighting its various concerns, um, one of the main ones being the fact that it believed it was a value destructive error. And uh, they had been, you know, highlighting those concerns since December and um, Ancora advisors with stakes in both um, was one of the deal's many supporters. But now that merger is over the line after indeed sparking lots of heated arguments between the activists on both sides of the deal. And one other that I'll mention very briefly is Massimo. And it's an interesting one simply because um, Massimo uh that's a med tech company. It announced a series of changes to its governance policies, um, and that included the termination of a very controversial poison pill that it had implemented and a proposal also um, to expand and declassify its board. And they're also going to make an adjustment to executive pay. And of course, that's an interesting one that people have been watching because the company has been involved in a legal case with Politan and California State Teachers Retirement System, and it's over its rights plan. And 
and executive pay. And it's just a further development along the road for Massimo because uh, it also double backed on bylaw amendments in February after um, a judge said the decision over whether Massimo was entitled to contested information about Politan um, uh, regarding its bylaws um, would have had to wait until a full trial. So it didn't um, want to risk a full trial. So it actually backtracked on those bylaw amendments. So the fact that since then it has also made a number of changes to its governance policies, an interesting development since we last spoke. So now then, let's get into your picks for the biggest news stories you've come across. Uh, Antoinette, we had a rather interesting short report recently targeting digital payment company Block. Can you tell us about that? Yes, um, Block. This was a, a very interesting one over recent weeks. So Block, first of all, in case um, you're not aware of the company itself, it's formerly known as Square and it's a digital payment company and it's led by Twitter founder Jack Dorsey. And just I suppose people will have known Jack Dorsey and the fact that he resigned as the Twitter CEO back in 2021 and that followed criticism from Elliott Management. Um, they had raised questions about his overall time and devotion to Twitter given his role at Block. So um, on the 23rd of March, short seller Hindenburg Research carried out a report into Block and it followed a two year investigation and it was a pretty damning report. So it claimed it had been overstating its user counts and taking advantage of low income and minority consumers through predatory offerings. So the short seller also took issue with the cash app platform itself, claiming Block had been reporting misleading metrics filled with fake and duplicate accounts. And it pointed to these fake accounts um, with a number of examples. It said as part of its investigation, former employees estimated that 40 percent to 75 percent of those accounts they reviewed were fake and indeed involved in fraud and were additional accounts uh, tied to a single individual. The company was quick enough then to issue its own statement saying the report was factually inaccurate and also describing it as misleading. And indeed, the company also went a bit further than that, saying it does intend to explore legal action against the short seller. Sticking on short selling, uh, tell us a bit more about Hindenburg Research. Just how active has it been? Hindenburg's definitely a big name in the world of short selling. And their outfit's been involved in several high-profile engagements over the years. One need only look at its recent short report at Adani, which was issued in January, to see the power and influence Hindenburg has in the market. The recent short seller's report accused the Indian conglomerate of accounting fraud and stock manipulation, and the report actually wiped out more than $150 billion from Adani's market value within just a month. Last May, Hindenburg also dominated headlines after going short on Twitter right in the middle of Elon Musk taking the reins. The short outfit predicted that the Tesla CEO would pull out on his $44 billion takeover bid for the social media platform, and within a week, Twitter stock lost roughly 30% of its value. As you can see, Hindenburg often targets the big names, and it's certainly an active player, so I'm sure this isn't the last we've seen of them this year. Well, fantastic, Rebecca. And uh, obviously, if you want to see updates, uh, you can on our activist shorts module. Um, now, staying with you, Rebecca, BlackRock CEO Larry Fink has recently issued his annual letter to CEOs and investors. It's normally quite big news. Uh, so what were the key takeaways? Yeah, Larry Fink's letters always gain a lot of attention. And this year's no exception. 
But what I think makes his letter really interesting this year is just how very different it is to letters seen in previous years. So Fink's letters to corporate CEOs and BlackRock investors, especially those issued in 2021 and 2022, were very climate-oriented. Even when their focus was centred around various current events like the pandemic or the war in Ukraine, a significant portion of the letters were always encouraging companies to enhance their ESG reporting and oversight, with the understanding that this is the information investors need to really enhance their own decision-making processes. But this year's letter was quite different. Fink adopted a decidedly more neutral stance on ESG, going so far as to suggest that the responsibility for driving corporate ESG engagement doesn't really lie with asset managers, but instead lies more with regulators and policymakers. And the reason that this letter is so different from previous ones is, of course, the rise of the anti-ESG movement, which claims that investors shouldn't be making ESG considerations when making their investments. They should instead solely focus on maximising financial value for investors. Anti-ESG has become particularly big in the US, and so BlackRock's now kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place, trying to appease clients that are invested in its funds that want to be environmentally and socially responsible, while also looking to appease the growing number of state policymakers that are threatening to divest significant sums from BlackRock over its alleged energy industry boycotting. So I certainly don't envy BlackRock. They're not in an easy position to be in at all. And uh, very soon we're going to hear about Joe's in-depth article. Uh, But before that, Antoinette, what has been happening then more broadly on the anti-ESG movement? Rebecca briefly mentioned it there. Yes, a significant development on this very subject came recently enough when the US President Joe Biden moved to veto a resolution to overturn the Congressional Review Act, that's known as the CRA Bill, and that had sought to overturn a Department of Labour rule which allows retirement plan fiduciaries to consider ESG risks in their decision making. So 18 Republican state governors, they all joined forces to push back against Biden's so-called ESG agenda, as they were describing it. And they had warned it was having a damaging impact on the US economy and on the global financial system overall. However, Biden's move now has been welcomed by many activist groups and he, since he did make that veto. Um, one of those groups, as you saw, they issued a statement to incite you shortly afterwards saying that the veto demonstrates that common sense and free markets are Biden's top priority. And the move was also commended by shareholder advocacy group, the Interfaith Centre on Corporate Responsibility, the ICCR. And they told Incitia that any environmental and social factors such as climate change and the way the companies treat their workers, that they present systemic risks that will have long term economic impacts on companies, investment policies and society more broadly. And that all has to be taken into account when you consider this anti ESG movement. So I guess it's, it's gathering pace. It's it's not a subject that's going to go away. We also had a recent report on the Newswire um, also that tied nicely into this topic. And it found that around 70% of investors are focusing on climate change in their investment policy, despite growing headwinds such as the anti-ESG movement, um, hinting at a shift from aspiration to implementation is how the survey described it. And that report came into us from international asset manager Rebecca. 
And so, Joe, um, we published an in- really insightful in-depth on activism in Israel recently. Uh, you authored it. Uh, so tell us, what was it about Israeli activism that caught your eye? Thanks, Kieran. Yeah, there were lots of things that I learned from writing this piece. In Israel, over the last few years, activists have predominantly been focusing on technology companies. After a slowdown in shareholder activism in the country during the pandemic, last year saw the most campaigns since 2018, with six recorded, five of which involved tech companies. And when I spoke with Shirin Herzog, a lawyer who operates in the region, she told me that the tech sector punches far above its weight, which explains in part the activist interest therein. She also stated that shareholder activism is a relatively new phenomenon in Israel. This year, there has only been one campaign so far at 3D printing company Nano Dimensions, which has been involved in a heated proxy battle with Canadian activist Merchantson. Companies in Israel are often wary of activist intervention, and it's taking a little bit longer for management and boards of Israeli-based companies to warm up to the notion that the shareholders are the true owners of the enterprise and that their voices matter, according to Andrew Friedman, co-head of law firm Olshan Froome Wolowski's Activist and Equity Investment Group. He also added that activist campaigns tend to involve a lot of headbutting in the region. And true to form, Nano Dimensions has subsequently taken Merchantson to court, citing that the result of a special meeting held by the activist is invalid. Merchantson claims to have won investor support for board seats and the removal of the printing company's CEO and chairman. The campaign is still somewhat ongoing. Also, there are some regulatory differences in Israel, but since 2019, only two of the 17 activist campaigns at Israeli companies were listed on exchanges outside the U.S., which makes it easier to conduct a campaign for activists unfamiliar with the region. There are some more interesting takeaways in the article that I'm sure the listeners will enjoy if they take a look. One thing I found really interesting when reading Joe's article was the comparisons that I drew with Asia, to be honest. Um, The article explores how activism is slowly being more accepted among um, Israeli companies, uh, but generally on the whole, board members are quite resistant to shareholder activism. And this is definitely very similar to the Asian market, where Japanese and Korean companies now are getting more accepting of activists and are more readily willing to chat. And this is something that only happened after several sustained years of engagement. So it will be interesting to see if Israel ends up following a similar trend to Asia. Well, thank you, Joe. Uh, Now turning to our vulnerability product now, Antoinette, can you share an example of a company that our team has recently identified as vulnerable to activism? Yes, Kieran. One of the reports published by the team in recent weeks examined energy company Tellurian, and that was ranked at the time in the 87th percentile on the Incitia vulnerability module of companies likely to face activist demands in the coming nine months. So while many energy stocks have surged indeed since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Tellurian stock was found to have floundered as it struggles to build a major liquid natural gas production facility. And this is all happening just as prices are falling and finances appear to be drying up. 
So with the company now looking for strategic investors to help complete that project, Insightia found that an activist could instead possibly argue for a sale of the whole company, possibly putting their own money into such a deal. And if so, extensive governance improvements would likely be sought as well by any activist, including the possible removal of the chairman, who was called Sherry Suki. So that and many other vulnerability reports are available on that module now. And now at this time of year, it gets very busy for us here, um, especially our editorial team, because, of course, there's going to be plenty of shareholder engagements. Are there any specific ones, though, you guys are keeping an eye on? Well, on my side, Kieran, uh, we'll certainly be watching Carl Icahn's campaign at um, a US biotech called Illumina. Um, He has nominated three directors recently enough to the company's board in a bid to see Grail. And Grail is a cancer detection test maker um, and he wants to see it sold. Um, He also wants to see the return of a former boss at the company, Jay Flatley. Um, So we'll certainly be watching to see how that all plays out. And how about you, Rebecca? I'm looking forward to quite a few different AGMs. But one in particular that's caught my eye is UPS's May 4th annual meeting, where no less than seven shareholder proposals are due to be voted on. And I think what's really interesting about this AGM is that there seems to be a shareholder proposal there for seemingly every ESG topic under the sun. There's multiple proposals concerning emissions reductions targets, as well as issues like reproductive rights, diversity and inclusion reporting, ESG metrics and pay as well as dual-class share structures. And UPS is no stranger to ESG proposals. It regularly faces upwards of five or six proposals of this kind every year, which just goes to show exactly how many ESG-related demands investors are so often asking of these big American public companies nowadays. There are various other S&P 500 companies, like Johnson & Johnson, Microsoft, and Meta Platforms, for example, whose AGMs I always find super interesting as well, because they always also have that big abundance of ESG shareholder proposals subject to a vote. And these proposals often perform pretty well. So I'm always spoiled for choice at which AGMs to keep an eye on at this point in the year. And for you, Joe? Yeah, there's an AGM coming up on May 9th where... Pitney Bowes has asked shareholders to support its slate against Hestia Capital Management's attack, saying the activist campaign is built on flawed assumptions and a poor understanding of the shipping and mailing industry. So that should be interesting. Well, thanks, Rebecca and Antoinette. I'll see you next time. And Joe, see you on the podcast again soon, I hope. Yeah, I look forward to it. Well, that's it for today's episode. Uh, Do remember, though, to download our latest report, Corporate Governance in Asia, which is the definitive review of all things shareholder activism, proxy voting and stewardship throughout the region. I'm Kieran Paul, and I'll see you next time.